This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 19, recorded on October 23rd, 2019. listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Foner. How are you today? Pretty good. How about you? Not bad. Uh, you know, uh, micro course starts today. And my course starts in two weeks. I'll be doing a week of fizz and then kind of one and done there and getting started on research in the uh, affiliate uh, program, starting to put stuff together with our amazing co-host, Indeed. Uh, Dr. Christopher Keller, who's joining us again. Yeah. Hello. I see uh, Fawner's finally uh, earning the paycheck they're paying him. Finally. Finally. Well, it only that. took me, what, July, <laughs> August, September, October? Yeah, all finally the way till October. Finally doing some work in the yeah. classroom. But I feel like uh, hopefully we have some new listeners from the master's program. I made sure to advertise the podcast. A few students said, hopefully they weren't lying when they said, oh, yeah, I've been listening. I love it. They just want extra points. That's Maybe. True. Nah, I'm kidding. They're yeah, that was people. a joke. They're that was a people. joke. Okay. And uh, anything else you want to talk about before we get going here? Well, uh, coming up, what is that next week? We're going to have the research day, right? Oh, yes. Lecom? Lecom's research day. Uh, uh, Dr. Keller, your kids have a few posters. Is that right? Uh, four. Four. I got to nice. finish those today. So Cool. Wow. And then you and I are going to be doing a short presentation each on our research hopefully, interests hopefully. and aims and seeing if any students would be interested in that. And we'll be doing some uh, recording and some interviews. Yeah, that's, with... the, that's why I want to mention it, particularly for our listeners, is that expect an episode on that research day. What we're going to be doing is going around interviewing some of the students presenting posters and talks, and then we're going to sit down with uh, Dr. Spielman to tell us about research efforts at LECOM, and then we're going to talk about some of the projects and some of the great work that gets done here. Sounds good to me. Fantastic. So uh, today is October 23rd. Uh, we have a birthday, don't we? Yes, we do. It's uh, Felix Bloch's birthday, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was a Swiss-American physicist who shared with Edward Purcell the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1952, and he developed something really cool called the NMR, or the Nuclear Magnetic Resonance Method for measuring the magnetic fields of atomic nuclei. Now, the important uh, sort of application of NMR is, is what exactly? So with NMR, well, you in, you asked it. Why don't you answer? What is NMR used for? <laughs> uh, well, to 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 figure out uh, structures of of molecules, right? To I mean, yeah, and I mostly figured out structures. I think of last molecules. time I used NMR was back in undergrad when I attended yeah. Gannon University. I did was it some NMR. Or it was organic, organic too. I did yeah, some NMR I remember experiments. Using NMR way back in the day. And by that point, whenever I used the NMR, I realized, okay, I'm. I, I'm better served as a biologist than a full-fledged and long-term uh, chemist. They're, uh, uh, they're hard to read. I mean, if you're trained, they're not hard to read. Oh, the spectra and the readouts? I remember when I was a kid, they were hard to read. For yeah, me, I had to do a lot of studying on that for OCHEM, too. Uh, yeah. 
It's like it, it is. It's like oh, Kim, how often do you use NMR now in your job? I right. mean, not I, many. Not many. No, no, I saw not the many. word and I saw the word NMR here for the first time in probably a few years since yeah. you know grad school maybe. Yeah. We just as biologists, we just know that hey, it's out there. Uh, people do it. They figured out structures of things, and then uh, they send us the structure, <laughs> yeah, which we, send, we do use. Which we do use exactly. We send that type of stuff <laughs> off now, but you know, it's a it was a really great, uh, still widely used method, revolutionary at its time, and. Um, uh, Felix had quite a um, he had quite a life story, right? He obtained his PhD under Werner Heisenberg in 1928, and then he taught briefly in the German. The Heisenberg, famous physicist, the Heisenberg. principal, yeah, yeah, like the 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 scientist. Um, uh, when Hitler came to power, he ended up leaving Europe for the U.S. and. Um, after he, you know, developed this concept of magnetic neutron polarization in 1934, he then was able to measure the neutron's magnetic uh, moment. So he he did a lot. I was actually quite shocked. He worked on the atomic bomb, right? Yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, during World War II, and afterwards led to the development, along with coworkers, of nuclear magnetic uh, resonance or resonance rather. So, and this has been widely applied in not only chemistry, but also medicine as well, yeah. widely applicable yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, the neat thing about him, too, is that he then became the first director of CERN. And uh, if you guys follow science news at all, uh, CERN, a few years ago, uh, uh, were able to measure Higgs, Higgs boson, right? Mm -hmm. What what, yep. what turned yep. at the yep. time in the news, that God particle, whatever. And I think that's a, a, a misnomer. It shouldn't be called that. But... The anyway, God not, particle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to get into that. We're not going to go into the weeds of religion, no, no, faith, no. and the crossover it's with science. A good idea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can save that for another podcast. But uh, CERN, it's the right. That's the European Research Organization that uh, has the largest uh, particle physics accelerator uh, in the world, right? Hmm. And um, it, I, as as an American, I think it's sad that they have it there and we don't have it here. And you know, there's there's a history of that. Apparently, there was plans to build the largest particle accelerator in the U.S. Ooh. and then Congress pulled funding on that. And then the EU said, "Oh, we'll build it." And then they went ahead and built it. And then now it's over there and not here. But anyway, our our scientists have access to that. Yeah, uh, they use it all the time. Okay, anything else we want to add about Felix? I don't think so. Pretty uh, cool dude. Yeah, pretty cool. Alrighty. What are we talking about today? Any clarifications, by the way, from previous episodes we want to talk about? I don't think so. Nobody okay. that emailed me or emailed the podcast. I think we're good. Yeah, I don't know. All right, cool. What's our uh, show today? Biohacking and do-it-yourself science, DIY science. So uh, tell us about that. So in especially in the you know last few decades i would say uh biology has been kind of the field of biology has been undergoing kind of a pretty significant technological change or metamorphosis if you will that's a pretty uh extravagant term uh -huh. but i do like it i like to use these uh multi uh syllable words when i can but you know um biology is becoming a little bit 
dare I say, easier and more widespread to use because of better accessible, um, because of better tools and models for, you know, exploring and investigating these various living systems uh, through kind of synthetic biology and the use of designer organisms. You know, various companies are able to hopefully develop and implement cheaper drugs uh, specifically targeted treatments for, you know, cancer, uh, green fuels, all that stuff that, you know, probably a lot of our audience has seen talked about in the news. But um, one thing that's been really gaining traction over the past few years, as these promising biological technologies become easier to manipulate and control, um, a lot of the different things that could have only been investigated in high-end labs are now becoming very routine for not only undergraduate institutions, but also even high school students, right? And amateur biologists, which I remember back what I would do in high school back in, what, 2001 to 2005. I mean, we could hardly do anything that would be classified as cutting edge. I mean, I remember just looking at a microscope in certain bio yeah. courses. I'm trying. Uh, we dissected a frog, maybe. Okay, frog dissection, right? Uh, frog. We do frog uh, as well. Some, some high schools. Fish. I remember yeah, doing crayfish. crayfish. Mm -hmm. Some high schools in the U.S. do like a fetal pig dissection. Yep. Or, yeah. But um, even, I mean, even all of that stuff, like that's more, you know, the field of bio, like more anatomy and physiology, but more molecular biology techniques that. A lot of students only got introduced to in their undergraduate setting and then especially in graduate school now are becoming more commonplace, you know, earlier and earlier and earlier. And that's leading into kind of this, you know, I guess you could call it maybe a subfield or this kind of community that has recently arisen known as the do-it-yourself biology community. And again, like you had said, it's ultimately about greater accessibility and the advent of these technologies that are becoming cheaper and easier to use. Okay. And I, you know, just listening to you talking about high school reminds me of college. We didn't even have a thermocycler. Yeah, yeah, okay. And in my college, we, we, we were doing it by hand. We eventually got a thermocycler, but mm -hmm. they were so expensive. Yeah. You know, the expensive. And now you can get them a what less than a thousand dollars. You can get a yeah. A they're, not, they're not that pricey. No. Yeah, they're not. And so the price pricey. coming down, I think, is pushing this this idea of of the of the conglomerate do it yourself bio forward. It's really cost and, and accessibility. And what we're gonna discuss throughout today's podcast is, you know, some of the really positive benefits of this do it yourself field. Um, and this greater accessibility, but we're also going to talk about conversely some of the cons, some of the potential dangers, some of the ethical concerns and implications, uh, things like that. But I guess kind of switching back to you know some projects that are currently going on. I mean, you have uh, students now that are involved in science fields. You know, they're creating bioengineered bacteria that can sense and detect arsenic levels in water or even, you know, um, certain models and methods that are able to target and destroy tumor cells in your body. And so with this greater accessibility, we're leading to greater avenues for uh, 
the treatment of various diseases, um, environmental concerns such as arsenic in the water. This greater accessibility has been shown to have some positive side effects. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, making sort of high-end science available to uh, undergraduate institutions with less money maybe, or uh, even high school level uh, science courses where uh, this stuff, you know, encourages students to enter science. They see uh, what it really means to be a scientist, what it means to do some of these experiments. And uh, but I, I think as long as it's under an umbrella of an institution, it's not really sort of uh, lumped into that biohacking business. Right. So right. Uh, a, a lot of the biohacking sort of do it yourself uh, biology or more biohacking than do it yourself biology is uh, really people just out of their basements or in more uh, amateur it, biology area. Yeah. Right. And by amateur, exactly what you had said, not under the auspices of any type of institution, um, but somebody maybe more as a hobby or with some, hopefully, a little bit of education. Now they're able to set something up in the comforts of their own homes and they're doing some of these experiments, right. which, again, as maybe some of our listeners are predicting, can lead to some potential concerns about the safety and ethical concerns of that amateur biology area. And, you know, we call them amateur biologists, but sometimes if, if you look at the level of science they're doing, it's, it's almost at the same level as some of the science that's done at big universities, right? Well, but with, with these consortiums that, that um, have, have even members and some of them pay member fees, typically there's, there's an individual that, that has been trained. Mm-hmm. Um, that has a degree from an institution. So um, there's there's research. I mean, the internet opens up a, a plethora of, of opportunities. Yes. But, you know, we've all done science. We've done research in this room. And um, there's one thing to read it and there's another thing to do it. And so it's always good to have the somebody experienced available to, yes. to talk things over and to show you the ropes because my gosh, doing something simple as an Eliza can go wrong and then you oh, got yeah. to troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I, I think they have trained people as well. Yeah. And I guess, you know, part of what I imagine will be our eventual debate on the topic will be, yeah. okay, amateur biology versus some type of professional training, because I feel like some professional guidance, mentorship and training is needed for those situations where something happens to go wrong. Um, Without that training, you know, some people are able to do it, but I would imagine a majority of people won't know where to go next or won't know how to problem solve without the more professional type of experience. I think doing like some sort of, uh, you know, basic science or science that you know, is not experimenting maybe on other living organisms might might be, hey, whatever, you know, you're an amateur, so you're just dilly-dallying with science, whatever, yeah, you do that. Uh, I think part of the problem starts with when you maybe are starting to do uh, research on organisms, and uh, maybe our listeners know this, but uh, part of the uh, safety mechanisms that are put in place at research institutions, and maybe uh, you both can talk about this, is uh, something called IRB, which is Institutional Research Board, and IACUC, uh, Institutional Animal, Animal Use Care and, and Use, Use Committee, Committee. Yep. something like that. So, yep. uh, so why don't we talk just a little briefly, uh, just to introduce our listeners to these two concepts of IRB and IACUC. Sure. So, you know, it, 
research at institutions is very, very overseen by not just the institution, but outside bodies as well. And um, I was the chair of the IACUC here for a while. And, and we're very cognizant about the type of research that we do with animals. Um, and when you say organisms, Dr. B. Abdullah, we're not talking bacteria, are right. we? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the majority of research is done. I, I haven't seen a lot of, of, of animal research come out. but um, these, With biohacking, the, you mean? With biohacking, mm -hmm. sure. Um, it, it's very well regulated. But I think that's where the scare comes in is yes. these people aren't trained. And, and I'm separating IACUC. So animal research – while it's it's necessary, some people oppose it. Um, mm -hmm. There's been a lot of good that's come out of that. We've learned most of um, how our immune system works, starting with with a mouse model. Yes, so, that's true. Yeah. Um, and the so effects of different drugs, pharmaceuticals, exactly. yeah. cancer treatments. I mean, a long laundry so, list. Of well, I mean, the reason you can take an aspirin when you have a headache and it doesn't kill you is because of animal models. Sure, we can't deny that. Yeah, but but we're not buying them from the pet store, right? right. I that's mean, true. Yeah. Appropriate science does not go down to the pet store, buy an animal, and say, "Hey, let's go ahead and test it out on on this." Exactly. These, these are well regulated and overseen projects, and you don't get that. Um, now, with biohacking, now I, I, I suspect you could, but um, IACUC committees are uh, there's there's training to be done by the members involved. There are specific members that you you need to have, including somebody who's not part of your institution. Yes, right. externals. Externals, mm -hmm. yeah, and so. Um, Ethicists sometimes mm -hmm. sit on these committees. Yes, veterinarians. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's a requirement I to have it a veterinarian. It's absolutely required. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, a, a consortium aside, these individuals doing biohacking in their basement don't have that type Who of regulation. Who do they answer they don't, to? They don't right? answer to Where's anybody. the oversight? Right. Now, that's one thing. But now think about human research. Mm -hmm. I mean, the and end, that's where IRB comes in. That's where IRB comes in. Now, IRB, you have consent forms. And you might say, hey, Dr. B. Abdullah, Dr. Farr, would you participate in my study? And you say, sure. And you'd think that's consent, but it's not. Yeah. There's a lot more that goes into informed consent. There, mm -hmm. are, there are components uh, such as making sure you know the risks and benefits. Right? What, what, what happens if something goes wrong? Yep. What, what happens to the data? What happens to your mm -hmm. personal information? Who gets to see it? Who doesn't get to see it? This is all things that need to be spelled out. Right? And we have all gone through that process yeah. at some point in time. Yeah. Um, Submitting an IRB proposal or an ICUC proposal. Those are pretty lengthy and, right. you know, they're meant to be somewhat arduous because you have to cover your bases yeah. to make sure you are fairly humanely experimenting on human beings for yeah. the IRB and then for the ICUC with animal research. You have to justify and almost completely defend why you need to do that research on humans and animals. Right. And I would say, again... Why 10 mice and not 5? Oh, the sample two. sizes, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. the statistical you analysis. You keep it as low as possible. Exactly. Right. Well, um, you know, people have done research on other people from biohacking, um, including on themselves, right? Yeah, and that's what, I guess, another term we have to... Define here is biohacking, or I think it's sometimes known as grinder biohacking, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's when we're getting into the injection of like chemical substances inside of the body to hopefully um, enhance physiological and biological function. And even in some cases, this kind of, I think it's called biopunk or biocyberpunk <laughs> movement. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot right. of the, names for it out there. The placement of these like cybernetic, you know, devices into the body to improve function. And 
I Boy. actually saw something on TV about that. Uh, I can't remember what what show it was on, but um, there's a company out in California that the, the the employees have embedded microchips to open doors and get snacks out of the vending machine. Yeah, right. Not, not, you knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah, you knew I mean, it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Is that biohacking though? I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's you're experimenting yeah, on yourself. Sure, sure. I yeah. mean, I. I would I would argue that it's at least closely associated with it. I mean, maybe not like the guy who injected himself with um, chlorine six, but oh, that's cool. I mean, dangerous. Well, is it but... cool? It's dangerous. Oh, it, right? I would say so, more. So let's talk about that. This yeah, go ahead. A, go ahead. This, this is a guy who injected himself with a chemical compound uh, called chlorine e six into his eyes. So just just imagine <laughs> that. I mean, I'm not brave enough to. Okay, I have such faith in the research and science and work that I put into this. Oh, I'm just going to go ahead and inject that into my eyes and see if so, I can have So what them. does that do? So chlorine E6 temporarily alters molecules in the eyes known, known as photosensitizers mm -hmm. and effectively You're what gonna it endowed yeah, this guy with enhanced night vision. So you're increasing like visual contrast and really enhancing and increasing the capabilities of night vision. And so it makes you more receptive to light. Yeah, think about it like a cat's eye at night, or you can but see what, what them kind it, of glow. It's it's because of the photosensitizers in there. Yeah, they can they can see light you know better than we can at night. Clearly, that's why. Yeah. I wonder what it did to his vision during the day. Well, right? remember because there is. If it increases, I mean, you, yeah, you've got the iris that limits the amount of light that goes in, right? But if it increases the amount of light you can see, wouldn't that screw you up your day vision? Well, well remember there's a there's a structure in animals that can that have increased capabilities of night vision. Is that the tapetum lucidum, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, where are the microbiologists? That sounds good enough to me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, present in cats, dogs, you know, cows. But is it we... present in humans? But he wouldn't have it. He, he wouldn't have it. Or is it in all mammals? I don't know. But this was a temporary alteration of the molecules with right. the chlorine. Yes. So I would imagine it probably would have Yeah, because worn he, off. he's not able to change his genetic. Uh, but uh, Unless he does CRISPR, which uh, some other guy did. I think we need to get into CRISPR in a moment. But, I mean, what... The ethics aside, I mean, it, it amazes me that in a society where you have so many different avenues of therapy and, and compound drug compounds, we don't even know how they work. And we have people that have terminal cancer and yet you can't use whatever you want. You can have some guy inject himself with a compound that can make him go blind. Yes. Right. You know, and, 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 and just what, what, what is this guy thinking? What's the purpose? Like, why, why, why the hell? Yeah, have night just... vision goggles. Right. <laughs> right. What, what right. are you doing? That's right. Yeah, well, they think do about have night vision goggles. You're right. Think about this and other. And they're probably cheaper than this treatment. Probably. This other component to this grinder biohacking kind of these ethical concerns. Um, I think in 2018, there was a New York Times piece that covered grinders, these individuals who inserted RFID chips in the, into their bodies, and they used these chips in their bodies to access secure areas of hospitals, and they also were able to put sound-enhancing magnets into their ears so they could have, you know, built-in types of headphones. Enhance the sound. Yeah. And again, to me, we I think yeah, wow. I was joking with one of you the other day about one of these days, now that you can have, you know, a cell phone on your watch, basically, and internet capability on an iWatch, we're going to come to a point in time where 10, 20, 30 years from now, you can put a contact lens in your eye, and based on how you're blinking, I think they're already developing this. Right. 
uh, based on blinking, maybe send a text message or search for something on the internet I mean, it, it, or see well, greater distances well, like I, Superman. I mean, cheating in exams 20 years ago. No. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what we're going to do as professors. Like, yeah. how do you, yeah. okay, remove all your contacts, take Not off all your glasses. Well, we're already at that point. No watches, no phones. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you basically have to walk into and examine your underwear, unfortunately. <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. not, that's not what we do here at Lee Camp, uh, just so you know. <laughs> but it, it's just scary to think, okay, what's the next thing that comes about? You inject, you know, I don't know, nanobots or nanoparticles into well, your body. That's already, that's and already it feeds. Done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It for, sounds for like science cancer fiction. Treatment. And yep. Everything we're talking about. About has already it's been done. Already been no, done. None of this is is sort this of. This is not mainstream yet. Right. Yep. Right. It's, it's amazing, but you know, most of what we're talking about was done by a company yeah. that has oversight. Right. right. That that, right. that follows. I. It doesn't matter. Like it, we, we've been talking about institutions, but also companies, drug companies. They do have oversight when they're developing uh, a new compound for treatment. They have to follow. Um, IRB regulations as well. And so getting back to biohacking and, and DIY bio, you know, here you got people doing things like in, injecting things that, you know, that could be harmful yeah. to themselves or it could be seen as maybe terrorism, right. even breaking into hospitals. Now, now the thing is about a lot of these, uh, none of this sort of biohacking at this level of biology uh, is is possible without you having to buy supplies and equipment. Yes. yes. And a lot of companies will not sell you things unless you have an institutional license to buy things. But you can find a lot of things online. You can yes. find a lot of things on eBay. You can, you know, I was oh, looking. Yeah. I was looking on eBay yesterday, just sort of like preparing for this. Yeah. You can find anything, mm. centrifuges, cytospins, thermocyclers, uh, if supplies. You have the money. If you've well, got the money, someone will sell it to you. Yeah, yeah, and there's plans out there to build your own. There's, a, what, the Dremel centrifuge? Uh-huh. Oh, with, the incre with so increased internet capabilities uh -huh. and a variety of these different printing. websites. 3D printing. You could have somebody who never took a biology class um, and a, just reading up on scientific concepts, they could build this stuff, buy stuff with the capabilities, and start performing their own experiments. Therein, I think, lies the danger, well, right? So, okay, so is it a good thing? I, I guess that's, you know, you say there's the danger. Is it a good thing that we have access for people who maybe couldn't get their, their PhD, don't have an appointment at an institution to be able to do some of these scientific research? I, I don't think you need the, necessarily the PhD to do the science. You can have the train like we have techs who only have bachelor degrees that that have the training, right? I, what I what I think you need to do proper science. He, here's a good thing in my opinion about science done at sort of institutions. That a uh, you've got the training, right? B there's the oversight. Mm -hmm. C, there's a you're surrounded by a bunch of other scientists where that they can either help you with experiments or help you through uh, troubleshooting or even help you through uh, some of the legal or moral issues of things, right? Yes. So there's that oversight. The other thing about science done at institutions is that science polices itself. Meaning what? Meaning that you can you can discover something. And uh, no one is going to know about it until you publish it, right? Yep. And when you go to publish it, the scientific field, uh, a lot of people don't know this, the scientific field sort of re reviews itself, right? Yes. You send it out uh, to a publication or to a journal. That journal is going to, before they publish it, they're going to send it out 
to four, five, sometimes six other scientists who are in your field mm -hmm. that will effectively uh, rip that. Tear it apart. Yes. Yeah, rip that study apart. Pretty much tear it apart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reviewer mean, number two. Look at, look at experimental design. Look at, sure. you know, um, how they, their, their controls, their, the variables that they set up, the actual, not only analysis of the data, but then the explanation of the data, right? right. Are they drawing proper conclusions and the appropriate conclusions from their data. And it's an incredibly... Do they have appropriate controls? Do they yes. have the right number of samples? Did they do the experiments correctly? They, and most of the time, they reject your study and say, no, you still got to do X to prove this. You still got to do Y to prove yeah. that. And before you do any of that, none of it gets published. So that the good thing, in my opinion, about structured science, the way we have it, now is it is a self-policing discipline that yes. is pretty much there are a few cracks here and there right there are a few bogus studies that make it out but for the most part i would say that it is a discipline that leaves out uh bullshit science right yeah for I lack agree. of a better term exactly and so in the term. In <laughs> scientific one <laughs> in diy biology in the amateur biology field that type of policing, that type of oversight is largely absent. So really, you know, the, the reins are kind of taken off. And that's that's scary to think about. You, you see in these movies, right, where inevitably, especially in these like disease outbreak movies, I'll never... I'll got to love those. You know, the one movie that I always think about is uh, the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman from the 90s. Love it. And at one point, wasn't that one was wasn't there one with Sandra Bullock or is that a different one? No, that was Contagion. Contagion, Contagion with uh, that was yeah. that was pretty intense. That was also good, but they end up coming up with the cure at the end of that movie. Oh, well, spoiler alert! Um, and the uh, woman ends up, I think, injecting herself before she can treat and help her father. Yeah, biohacking. Uh huh. And <laughs> it is. that's exactly it. And, you know, you see that and you're in the movie and it works. And as an audience member, you're like, oh, wow, that's, you know, incredible. Like they just discovered the cure. They validated that it worked. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into making sure that it works in that person, the specific physiology of that person, testing in controlled experiments the effects of that drug. And so that type of. The structure is missing, in my opinion, in amateur biology. Absolutely. I'm not saying that it can't be useful. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm also saying that there is a very high degree of danger that comes with it as well. I agree. I agree completely. I mean, a lot of these biohackers, whatever they find, uh, they think is, you know, so revolutionary and groundbreaking, they should post it online. And people go look at that. They're like, oh, some scientist did X, Y, Z, and you know, blah, blah, blah. This is the result, right? while it has not been vetted uh, appropriately by other scientists. And one other policing that we do as scientists is that uh, even if a study is published, uh, someone out there uh, replicates that study, right? Which is why every time you publish a study, you have to publish uh, the minutia of the methods and materials so mm -hmm. someone can go and try to recreate your study. And if they cannot come up with the same data... Uh, that you came up with, they say, wow, hey, your study is BS, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll challenge you out there in the journals. Absolutely. They'll publish a, a study uh, showing the opposite result. And then you you sort of try to figure out uh, who's right. More and more, more experiments get done to get figured out which one is correct. Yeah. In addition to all that, I mean, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about is bias. 
Right. In, in yeah. terms of, you know, every research study is going to have some amount of bias in there. I mean, clearly, I, I don't do Lyme disease research if I don't want to find some positive results. Mm -hmm. But, but the, the, go back to the guy that injected himself with chlorine six. How do you know there was an effect of anything at all? Right. He's going to tell you, oh yeah, yeah. If I'm going to take the time to inject my eye with something, I'm sure going to see it at night. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> but that's bias. It is. And so that tells somebody else, you know what? I should inject myself with chlorine six. These are dangerous. This is to set the precedent yes. of a danger that that DIY bio can pose. And now we see even with the RFID chip example, I mean, what can happen when somebody develops a way to, you know, I don't know, uh, fake fingerprints, let's say, oh. right? Or, um, again, to see in the dark. I mean, there are a lot of applications for this scary type of biohacking that in the wrong hands could lead to some pretty dangerous situations. Yeah, I mean, for, forget about designer babies. Think about a uh, rogue uh, faction or rogue state that wants to create a super Jeez. army, right? Uh, like a super soldier. I mean, I mean this is science fiction comic book stuff we're talking we've about. We've seen it in movies uh -huh. and comic it's, books and over and over. No, it's, it's no more science fiction. Yeah, now, no. now, now yeah. it's a reality, right? Well, so, here, you know, here, I just, um, just a, a quote I found, or a, quote, a definition, a quick definition for... Uh, DIY bio says that many biohacking projects revolve around the modification of life and molecular and genetic engineering. Think about that. Yep. The modification of life. Now, I know Dr. B. Abdullah and I had a discussion yesterday. We've been doing it for years. We've been doing it for centuries. I yeah. mean, uh, for, for our scientist friends out there, you know, um, Gregory Mendel and the, the peas and yes. the you know, yellow pod, green pod, but we're letting the plant do it. Bleeding, uh, artificial breeding of dogs, right? Yeah. Like we sure. have all these uh, pure, purebred species uh, of dogs that we call pure breeds, right? But these but are still all dogs. artificially selected. Sure. Right? Yeah. But we allowed the nature to do that. We may have select helped select for it. For it, yes. But we didn't get in there and mess around with it. And look, now you have GMO, you know, food, and and some of some of that's. Good, actually, yes. because we've been doing it for years. But we're talking about modifying things that could be dangerous. Yep. I mean, next time you're down in Walmart, guys, I want you to walk around thinking, hey, maybe that individual should be modifying life. Mm -hmm. You're not going to want that to happen. I we mean, don't even do it at this institute. You know, we, we try not to modify things. That's where antibiotic-resistant bacteria come from. Well, think about putting something bugs. into your body that your body is ultimately going to reject after a given period of sure. time, leading to unwanted and unnecessary inflammatory reactions, uh, risks of infections, even potentially increasing your chances of developing certain cancers. Sure. I mean, this grinder type of biohacking, the implications, and that's what I have the issue with, the long-term ramifications and implications are still unknown you don't know if whatever what was it the chlorine e6 injecting that into your eye uh years later okay um you're 35 years old and now you're blind in one eye or something sure. and hopefully he did it in one eye not both no, well, no. Well, you can see well at night and the day i guess <laughs> well i mean just in case uh, something goes wrong and he does go blind now i i think there's room for uh personally i think there's room for gene editing right uh Think of uh, detrimental diseases. Think of 
uh, genetic diseases. So uh, if, if we can go in and uh, say, um, and you know, I'm not talking about like a high blood pressure or diabetes or something like that. I'm talking about, uh, uh, you know, think of uh, Down syndrome, for example. Uh, is there a way, that's an extra chromosome, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is there a way to embryonically remove that extra chromosome before someone is born? Is there room for that? I, you know, is, would, would that be okay? I, I think in terms of sort of genetic engineering or gene editing or changing someone's biology for the better. For the better, but only in terms of sort of debilitating, life-threatening diseases, I think there's room in science for us to have that discussion. But we need to have oversight. But for sure, we need to have oversight. Uh, personally, uh, uh, like Dr. Keller said, you know, I, I, I'm against sort of like just enhancing individuals. Like, oh, you're six feet tall, you want to be six three, or you know, that'd I, be nice. Well, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to be six three, but uh, I'm not going to inject myself with anything to be six three. But who's going to? But at the same time, who's going to draw the line there, right? But that's what I mean. Yeah, like, when, I, where do we stop? Yeah, yep. I, I, I think any cosmetic enhancements that are done on the genetic level, I, I think that's a bit too much. That's a step too far. I think genetic enhancements to uh, get rid of sort of uh, diseases, like you know, someone, let's say, will be born with some sort of. Uh, genetic uh, deficiency or anomaly and they would die by the age of two. Wouldn't you try to, you know, uh, genetically help them to survive past that age and have a fulfilling life? I think there's room for that kind of therapy or treatment, mm -hmm. but it has, there has to be oversight. I, I agree completely, but you know, money talks and, oh, and what's going to happen. That's the problem. I mean, people that have the money, we saw right. that with the the college uh, scandal, right? People just throwing money, money just to get their kids into a better school, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, we've been phenotypically changing ourselves for ever, right? Right. I mean, so what's gonna uh, well, look at how money is? Look at how we're changing ourselves now with a, a form, a type of biohacking. You know, just drinking caffeine, right? And you know Don't that take is my caffeine away. Oh no, never! If they Dr. took Vonnegut. caffeine away, that's that's that, that's the end. <laughs> that's but we'll um, shut this whole thing down. You know, there are ways where you can do daily types of biohacks, um, optimizing. You know, the proper amount of caffeine dose for your body yeah. to enhance alertness, cognitive function. You know, things like that. Um, I think they even came out, if I'm not mistaken. And again, all of the things that we are discussing here. Uh, before you try anything, consult a medical professional. That's always the. Yeah, we're not telling anybody to do it. No, 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 no. Of course, inject your eye with chlorine E six. But there's there's a type of coffee that has this kind of biohacking twist that's known as bulletproof coffee. Have you guys ever heard of this? No, it's called well, bulletproof it, coffee. Coffee contains compounds including medium chain triglyceride oil. And that's been known as not only an energy booster, but it can be used as a weight loss tool. And there's a debate currently going on about the exact safety here of having this coffee with caffeine, but also with these MCT types of oils, the medium chain triglyceride oils. Now, obviously, before you start drinking this type of caffeine long term, it depends on age, depends, it depends on your current health, genetics, um, genetics genetic predisposition. And, of course, consulting with a medical professional before you go online. And, again, like you said before, Dr. A, thinking about how accessible this stuff is. You can go on, I don't know about Amazon, but probably eBay and find somebody who's selling something like Bulletproof Coffee. 
And you need to consult with somebody who knows what they're talking about, a medical professional, before you start putting that into your body uncontrolled. I mean, supplements and things like that, I mean, I'm okay with that. I mean, people take multivitamins every day. People take, uh, you know, energy boosters, things like that. I, I, I think we start going into some dirty weeds when we, when we start uh, changing the behavior of cells genetically. That's right? very different. Right. I mean, there's that, uh, the biohacker that in, at a conference, at a scientific conference, injected himself with uh, a CRISPR cast to increase muscle mass and strength and tone. And CRISPR cast for we've talked about it in a previous episode. It's effectively this genetic tool that can go in, chop your DNA, either take a gene out or add a gene in. And uh, this guy added a gene uh, to essentially increase muscle mass and muscle tone. And that that to me is is a step too far. Unnecessary. You know? Uh, there are other ways to increase muscle mass and muscle tone that don't involve genetic engineering. You know, go to the gym, uh, I don't know, take some protein, lift, etc., so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Uh, to inject yourself with a gene-altering uh, substance. Substance. I, yeah. I, I think. I personally, I think that's a step too far, particularly when. Uh, you generated that in your basement, which is what this guy did, right? You you have to trust that A, it's pure. B, it's cutting the genome at the right place. That right? your science and your experiments were absolutely pristine with no mistakes before you injected into your body. I don't know about you guys, but there have been times when I was both an undergrad and a grad student where – I would think, okay, I've crossed every T, dotted every I. This is an absolutely perfect experiment. And then let's say I run a PCR and I don't see, you know, the indicative no. band. Just that you, means not color, I not. did. Just you. Okay, Just that's you. fine. Yes, I, I, I admit flaws. Unlike my two co-hosts here, I'm perfectly humble enough to admit when I'm wrong. No, we screwed up a bunch of experiments too. But that's, you know, the, the evidence right there. People make mistakes and even professionals will make a mistake, troubleshoot, and fix something in a cellular model, in a bacterial model, in even certain animal models. I mean, here's the thing. Does, does he know his stuff doesn't have LPS, man? LPS is everywhere. Oh, right? God. Jesus. I mean, like, he... he Just he, a little bit of LPS in your system and right. you're toast. He could, he could uh, send and LPS for our listeners. Uh, he could send himself into anaphylactic L- LPS yeah. is uh, a lipopolysaccharide. It's... Um, it's it's found on gram negative bacteria like uh, like E. coli, mm-hmm. and it's really what's responsible for shock when you get a bacteria in your system. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it, it's a potent immune enhancing molecule. I used it a lot in my uh, my PhD research. Just but it to, has a viable use in a controlled environment and a controlled experiment. I touch it. <laughs> I mean, uh, if, if you do an experiment, it can in be mouse models where you want to say, let's say, turn on innate. Immune cells or turn on some activate the, immune cells, activate the innate them. immune system yeah. components. Yes, there, there is. There's no no medical use for it though. There's no medical use yes. for it. I no mean, approved medical use. No mm-hmm. approved medical use. But again, you run that risk of what exactly are you introducing into your body in an uncontrolled environment, such as I don't know a basement lab or the comforts of your own home, well, and that's where this uh, kind of this. Uh, democratized uh, life science slant I I have some issues with the 
inexpensive tools, the ability of anybody to have kind of like a portable lab in the comforts of their own home, uh, where's the controlling factor there? If I said I got a new drug and it's going to cure cancer, and I said, oh, you know, we spent millions of dollars and a company developed this with multiple people, I made it in my basement. Which one do you take? Mm-hmm. What are you going to – what do you – what are you going to trust the science? Now, I, I want to play devil's advocate for a moment too, though, and throw this out there. I've seen plenty of scientists that don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you oh, know, of I'm course, saying, yeah. right? I, well, I shouldn't say plenty, a few. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, mm-hmm. uh, the training's really important, but on top of that comes um, ability, I, uh-huh. I, I guess. And, uh-huh. and so, you know, I, I'm not doing cutting edge research here. We're doing, I think, important research for the area, but I've seen people go out and try to save the world and they don't know what they're doing and it can be dangerous look at what wakefield did yeah andrew wakefield for those that that don't know you you do know that vaccines do not cause autism but most definitely do not there's no data there's no data out there to support that conclusion there's data to refute that exactly and 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 here comes a guy who kind of false not kind of he falsified data how dangerous is that that's more dangerous i think than injecting yourself with crispr Yes. I agree. I agree. And uh, one one other thing we, sh- we we should definitely mention here this this is not this is not a bunch of scientists sort of defending their turf, right? That's not what we're doing here. Yeah. Mm-mm. This is not you know professors in their ivy towers sort of saying I don't oh, have one. You know you know th- this. I wish I did. No, this mm. is not what this is. This is sort of uh, explaining to our listeners that uh, science done through the proper channels has uh, uh, checkpoints in place. Ensuring the accuracy of that science, ensuring the uh, replicability of that science, and ensuring the safety of both scientists and subjects involved. Manipulating life should not be a hobby. I think that's what that's what it comes down to. And and a lot of what I've I've read, what I know about DIY bio is as a lot of people, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. I like I like I have hobbies, right? Yeah. I, I like to fish. I like to read. I mean, I like to read, you know, but I don't like races. to manipulate life. Yeah, yeah it's this... it's dangerous. You could unintentionally release some harmful right. substance, and we have our next big outbreak. That could be. This could be classified depending on the research that's done in these DIY bio labs. Uh, bio warfare, bioterrorism. I mean, the, well, not, not to be fair. To be fair, scientists and governments have also released altered organisms they have. in the environment in the hopes of sometimes and you know, there are and it there, hasn't gone well yeah there are yeah. examples where it has not gone well that's true just because you know it's controlled doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be uh beneficial but yeah i mean there's people like there's this one biohacker out in the somewhere in the middle of the country i forget where uh he's uh effectively experimenting with like 20 30 uh, plus dogs to like turn them uh, fluorescent he wants like a green fluorescent dog and i don't know why the hell you would want a green a fluorescent dog like what's the point of that right yeah i don't know that's kind of interesting <laughs> you don't want a dog glowing in the dark when but you wake show, up in the middle of the night well i guess you can find it at any time of the well, then you don't need night vision <laughs> these two guys should get together <laughs> they should come together that's right <laughs> i was gonna say you won't lose your dog anytime thing. soon uh, like in, in all seriousness who approved the eye cook for that because i guarantee you there was no. none there yeah. was no and, and that's the danger not. behind it that's the danger Very behind so. all of this and well and think about the national laws too um at this point who would have thought decades ago that gene editing would have been possible, would have been a reality. Who would have thought that, oh, it is possible. There is technology and the science available 
to, again, going back to the comic book geek world, to make a super soldier, you know, uh, manipulate somebody's physiology and DNA to give them increased muscle mass, right? The national laws here are not caught up yet to policing yeah. and regulating not only what these individuals do to themselves, but what they're doing to others, other animals or potentially other human beings. I think it's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, finish. I was going to say, I think over in uh, Singapore, they're currently debating and considering the issuance of licenses so that any biohacker, self-reported biohacker, will have to pass an ethics and a safety test in order to, you know, quote unquote, biohack. And if they don't do that and they're eventually caught doing that without a, having passed these tests and without a license, they get fined or jailed. Yeah. Uh, that's a good first step. Uh, uh, you know, another country, Germany, for example, uh, it's, it's illegal. You go to jail. Yeah, I mean, at, yeah, at I mean, the moment, it's illegal, right? So I mean, that there's that's a big different continuum right. there. Right. Yeah, I mean, and and you might think to yourself, who would do this? But currently, in the states, there's an estimated thirty thousand enthusiasts. Yeah, I was just gonna say, what is the size of yeah. DIYs or biohackers? That's in thirty. The US? Do you trust those thirty thousand people? Now, you know, and I, I want to say this too because, as as Doctor A said, we. Uh, you know, we, we're sitting here sounding negative towards it, but there can be positives that come out. Of course. Uh, individuals have great ideas. Uh -huh. But again, without the training, the, I think the danger, the risks outweigh the benefits uh -huh. of, of things that could go wrong without the training and, and um, oversight. So. And again, then the discussion becomes, okay, what type of oversight, what type of training, um, the, I guess, intensity of the training, are we going to require them to... I don't know, um, have a degree in biology, you know, a doctorate. I mean, I guess on I, that I think end... there of... needs to be oversight. I mean, yeah. scientists are self-policing in the oversight yes. part as well. Back in the, like, 70s, 80s, when uh, scientists discovered the ability to be able to change the genome, say, of a bacteria to make it produce a protein, say, insulin, used, you know, you could insert the gene for insulin in bacteria, have bacteria produce insulin. A lot of scientists freaked out, and then... What came out of that is the Asilomar Conference, where the greatest minds of all science came together for, for days, I think it was close to a week, to discuss the benefits and the uh, 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 negatives of uh, genetic engineering. And then what came out of that is different biosafety levels, yep. organisms yep. classified one, two, three, four. That was a good policing step. Uh, CRISPR-Cas gene editing a few years ago got discovered. They won the Nobel Prize. They haven't won the Nobel Prize for that yet. No, no. I don't think so, of, no. Uh, uh, M-I-R-N-A. Um, yes. And you know what? What happened? Uh, one of the uh, discoverers of, of that, uh, Jennifer Doudna, she went uh, before Congress asking Congress to put a moratorium on CRISPR-Cas, the mechanism that she discovered, to say, hey, listen, we, do, we, we don't know yet how evilly this could be used we need to put a moratorium on this to start effectively uh, uh, talking about the benefits you know to, to, to see where we can uh, regulate it or how we can move forward and uh, other countries did not do the same thing and what last year the Chinese scientists genetically engineered uh, these uh, embryos with CRISPR-Cas mm -hmm. and I think he uh, he's being prosecuted in China. Oh, I think at the moment. so. I think but, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but in the U.S., you can't do that because we put a moratorium on that till we actually study it and and know more. So, uh, you know, scientists are 
the, the field itself is not this irresponsible field, right? Like we, we do things where we self-police mm-hmm. when we see the risks. Yes. And again, that's something where a lot of things have to be considered. And I'm hoping, probably naively, that a lot of these do-it-yourself and amateur biologists are considering the implications and the impacts of what their end goal is and what their end result is. I mean, if you come up and develop some type of uh, genetically modified organism, I mean, we've talked about this already, but the release of some type of genetically modified organism into another country um, could violate the United Nations Biological Weapons Convention. Right. right. Um, Even the unintentional release. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And unintentional, I think, is key there. Yeah. Um, a lot of this, I'm not saying this is intended. I'm saying just by yeah. making a mistake and not understanding what you're exactly doing and what you, the long-term result would be uh, could lead to disaster. Also facilities, right? You're doing it at your home, in your yep. basement, in your garage. You know, if you, are, if you want to access, for example, some of the... Uh, animals that are kept here at, at LECOM, you got to go through four or five doors of key access and security yes. and mm-hmm. this and that, right? Containment is important, right? That's why they have all these <laughs> protocols in place for containment. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're uh, clo- closing to, to about an hour here. Any any last minute words, summaries? Uh, I, I just uh, from what it sounds like, I think we're all on the same page. You know, nobody wants to stifle innovation. Nobody's no. saying that no, that scientists, researchers, and institutions are any smarter or innovative than than some of these folks that are biohackers. But I, I think what it sounds like is um, training is important and safety. Mm-hmm. And oversight are important. Those are things that you don't get in your basement. And that's yeah. that's kind of just what, what we're saying is, you know, maybe these individuals, if, if it really is a hobby, they should turn it into a career. Mm-hmm. And you have to be cautious with this. I mean, even some of the more everyday types of biohacking methods, like we talked about with, you know, caffeine in the coffee, um, changes to a diet, right? Elimination diets, eliminating certain foodstuffs from your diet and you know, eliminating and then a few weeks later adding it back in to see, okay, do I have increased bloating? Do I have a rash? Things like that. That can be used under proper instruction from a medical professional for individuals to identify, are they allergic to a certain food? Um, And like I said, dietary changes. These are basic types of biohacks that everybody can do, but you have to be cautious. You have to be aware of, you know, your body. You have to be aware of what you're putting into your body. And of course, I am not um, promoting the stories we talked about earlier with injections of foreign substances and uh, putting implanting chips into your body, making yourself into, I don't know, um, some type of Terminator or something. Uh, Terminator. Yeah, right. New movie coming out soon. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. But, uh, you know, th- these types of things have to be approached with a lot of respect, a lot of caution, and with the appropriate degree of oversight. Okay. Great. All right, well, let's wrap up. Uh, You mind reading an email? We've got an embedded question in there, and then uh, maybe Dr. Keller and I could address the uh, immunology of that question. Sure. So um, Scott wrote in, Hello, BioBusters. I enjoy the show and wanted to drop a question and a possible future show topic. I read an interesting article on tattoos and the effect they may have on the immune system. I was wondering about your thoughts on this and if there are any other scenarios like this in the world that act this way where something might affect the immune system, um, something, you know, on the skin or uh, 
some like bee stings even like what are the uh changes to the immune system um it was a cnn article i believe from 2019 relatively yeah, recently yeah. from the past month and um they also added that dr delbert sounds absolutely dreamy but can be kind of a know-it-all <laughs> glad that dr c is around to keep him in check well scott thank you very much i really appreciate that um that's usually my job yes. in everyday life is to <laughs> Try to check and bring uh, Dr. Delbert back down to earth. Oh, uh, yeah, bit. he got a joy out of reading that one. No, face uh, for radio. That's what they say, right? <laughs> yeah, face for radio. That's right. That's right. So uh, the article talks, and uh, I wonder what you think, Dr. Keller. The, the article talks about how uh, there's this one guy who did this study, he, not an immunologist by any far stretch mm -hmm. of the imagination. I think he was an anthropologist, uh, did this study where uh he uh his his conclusions are that if you if you get a tattoo you enhance your immune response and i looked at some of the data and i'm sad limited to report that the data is bs yes it's <laughs> a nice way to put but it. uh but uh so just to answer scott's question really quickly and uh, dr carl jump in and, and sure. anytime you'd like um when you get a tattoo, you're depositing uh, uh, ink effectively in t uh, below the surface layer of the skin. And while that uh, turns on immune responses at that time, there is no permanent long-term enhancement or turning on of the immune response. Uh, that does not happen. So the, the beauty of, of the human immune response is that it's, it's, it's various. Uh, mm -hmm. we, there's so many different things out there. Think about the different types of infections you can get or cancers. And, and our body has to be able to respond to a, a, a plethora of, of so many different antigens. Um, but, you know, once you've had a response to, say, um, strep throat, you you know you can respond to strep throat again, but that doesn't enhance your immune response to something else. Mm -hmm. no. And while um, this is a local immune response, and you do get inflammation at that site because you're Absolutely. injecting a foreign antigen, that doesn't make your immune response respond to anything else no. any differently. Anybody. No, yeah, no, it does not. Absolutely not. And one thing the immune response does is that at the end of an, a reaction or an immune or an infection, inflammation, there's immune response resolution and it your immune response itself. Exactly, yeah, exactly. stops. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd have autoimmunity. It starts attacking your own tissue. It'll right? kill you. Yes, exactly. I mean, if you can't, yeah. if you don't, your immune system can't yeah. actually turn back and kill you. Oh, that's right. If you do not, not downregulate that response, yep. eventually you yep. waste away. So, uh, no, there is no evidence. Uh, the uh, published data that... And uh, this guy uh, uh, published two studies, not one study. He had a follow-up study, yeah. e equally equally BS. He, he has no training in immunology whatsoever, and uh, it, it, the data is, is 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 crap. I mean, uh, it's, lo it, yeah, looks it's, at cortisol levels as a measure of immune response. This is my favorite part. And cortisol levels, for those of you out there that know, can be affected by so many different everyday things. Everyday things. Your cortisol levels vary during the day. Other than vary during alone, yeah. what you're putting into your body during times of stress, both acute and chronic stress. I mean, cortisol is very heavily yeah. impacted and used. Yeah, yeah. The, the, measure, body. the measure of the immune response, and it's, it's well, a crap study. In both in both medicine and if I was going to do a research project. If you ask me, 
does this molecule or something upregulate the immune response? Cortisol is not what I'd be measuring. Yep. Yeah. You know, there's so many different things like your erythrocyte sedimentation rate and exactly. C-reactive protein, different Cytokine, markers of inflammation, yeah, so cytokines. So, so I mean, those are what's yeah. running the show. So yeah. there's so many things you can measure. So, um, But sadly, it made it into the news. It made it into CNN. It made it into uh, three or four other major news organizations. Uh, and, and it's not a surprise. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not shocked about that at all. I mean, CNN, uh, no, no. well, I mean, other than CNN, it made it into a bunch of other articles as well. We're not gonna pick on yeah. CNN alone, but yeah, they, it's, they... it's and, and that might be a, a conversation for later. But the way the media picks up on some of these, um, so I can say it too, bullshit articles, right. sensationalism um, and sensationalistic it is. reporting. That's where, and that is bottom line why we're having problems with measles. That's why because. Yeah. The media got a hold of the vaccine autism link, which was BS to begin with, and that and is, sensationalized it. And that and is know, a that, possible future show topic right. that is coming down sure the line, yeah, is uh, the show. media's role, both good and, as good we and said, bad. alarming and bad in terms of uh, I mean, scientific outreach. Look at the la- look at the Ebola outbreak. Right. Oh, had, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yep. we were all no. going to die, right? Mm-hmm. It's insane. Good to and see you guys. You know, all, all, all you have to do to sort of debunk a bullshit article like this is to say, okay, well, if tattoos enhance the immune system and make you immune to all sorts of diseases, then, okay, there are cultures out there, say Polynesian cultures, where mm-hmm. they're tattooed head to toe. They should not be susceptible to a single disease, yeah. yet they're dying of diseases left and right. All you got to do, it, it's, it's not it's that like hard. It's like a simple correlation. Exactly, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Or it's just, just looking, excuse me, society, people that have tattoos versus right. those that don't. Exactly. Is there any different rate in infections? Exactly. No, and there isn't. And then there isn't. Right. Okay. Well, I hope that answers your question, Scott. And, uh, that's... and please write in again, Scott. I appreciate your uh, <laughs> your thoughts and your honest criticism of the uh, oh, God, of the co-host. I'm not going to hear the end of this. All right. No. Thank you, Dr. Keller, for being a Absolutely. co-host with us again. Thank you, We'd Chris. We'd love to Absolutely. have you again. And all right, that's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. You can also use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah. You can find me at Twitter at Dr. Delbert. And you can find me, Dr. Christopher Fawner, at Fawner916. And Dr. Keller? Twitterless. 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 That's okay. Just email him or... Uh, or reach out to any of, of, of the, right. the hosts. Or you can email the show at thebiobusters. And at I'd be happy to answer any questions. We would send it to Dr. Keller. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Bahana Mani for the music. Bye.